Warlock Vorobok Raids. Presented by the Public Library of Cincinnati in Hamilton County. Welcome to Warlock Vorbach Reads, a Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library podcast. Tonight, I'm coming from the Lit Stacks at the Downtown Library, where odd noises and bumps in the stacks will cause shivers to run down my spine while surreptitiously raising the hair on the back of my neck and other unearthly delights. Tonight's podcast features another local author, Ben Lathrop, and his new novel, Midnight Horror Show. A thank you to Joe and the people at Crystal Lake Publishing for allowing me to read a section of this new scary novel. Now, the following program does contain a graphic description of a corpse. If this disturbs you, that's totally fine. Why don't you try one of the other earlier episodes? If not... Well, it's that time again, when each noise seems a little louder, each breath hitches in your chest, and the undead, partially dead, and soon-to-be-dead start walking. Welcome to Midnight Horror Show by Ben Lathrop. Tuesday, October 22nd, 1985. A searing white flash of sound burned my dream away. In an instant, nothing remained but shadows and dread and shame. I'd swatted at my clock radio out of instinct, but the noise didn't stop. As my brain struggled to catch up, I crawled over to the edge of the bed and read 4.21 a.m. in radium-painted numbers. The dark of my room felt darker than it should, and there was a smell in the air I didn't like. I picked up the telephone receiver from the edge of the nightstand. Dave, a familiar voice on the other end, said gently, We need you at 19 Haverson, and as soon as you can. I looked at the clock again, and rubbed at the gunk that had settled in the corners of my eyes. Okay, Chief. Leave your radio off. It's a bad one, Dave. The line went dead, and I hung up the receiver. I stumbled over to the shower in the dark and dunked my head under running water for a minute and then ran a comb through my hair and dug around for a clean-looking shirt and a pair of pants. I eased my shoulder rig on, holstered my thirty-eight, and then finished getting dressed before I headed out. I carried my shoes with me down the stairs and put them on when I made it to the porch. My landlady lived on the ground floor of the house and I didn't want to wake her if I could help it. I slid into my car, an unmarked 78 Caprice, and reached for the radio to call in before I remembered the chief's instructions. With a little coaxing, the Caprice started and I eased it into the street. The car had been new when I was assigned as the head of the investigative unit, a storied and illustrious law enforcement team that, to date, had been a one-man operation since the chief created it that same year. Wisps of fog snaked off the pavement as I made my way towards Black Hawk Road. The sun wouldn't be up for a couple of hours.
The Amoco station sign flickered to life as I drove past, casting long shadows across the parking lot of the sirloin stockade. The streets were deserted. Shift change at the IFI meat processing plant wouldn't be for another two hours. Around then, you'd see a few more cars headed to the plant, but not as many driving away. After a night of turning livestock into groceries, most of those guys stopped off at the rail spike tap for an hour or two before heading home. Place is a dump, but it's cheap and right by the plant. My first week in town, I went in there early to serve a bench warrant to the owner. First thing I saw was one fella face down on the floor and another guy covered in blood up to his armpits standing over him. I drew my weapon immediately and told him to put his hands on his head. He could barely do it without falling over. The rest of the bar's early morning patrons had a good laugh, and that's when I noticed none of them had bothered to wash up after clocking out either. Welcome to to boys, they said. Du Bois rhymes with noise. French settlers named it, I guess, but they're long gone, so we say it like Americans. We're about an hour and a half south of Iowa City, about that far north of Keok and county seat of Mohegan County. The schools are pretty good, and there's just enough crime to keep me employed. I do my best with what there is. I pull weeds when I find them, but most days I'm just a scarecrow. At the light, I could see a train slithering along opposite the river. The turn signal kept time as the rail cars rode along. I let myself watch a second or two after the light changed, then made a left at the courthouse, drove up the hill, and on to Halverson. The houses on this street are all big and built back when the rail traffic was heavy. Nineteen was easy to spot, a huge Queen Anne flashing blue and red like a neon sign from the lights of the two patrol cars out front. I parked on the street and saw the chief standing on the porch, waiting. I popped the trunk, got my evidence kit and camera bag, and then headed up to the house. Dave, he said, with his usual short nod of greeting, go in and take a look. We'll talk after. The door was open. I took a quick look at the lock and door jam. No obvious signs of forced entry and walked into the foyer. Floral wallpaper, a little old-fashioned, but in keeping with the looks of the outside of the place. Waxed wooden floors with spiral mats made out of knotted rags. Clean, but no footprints or tracked in leaves or mud. Family pictures and frames lining the wall up the staircase. Lights off upstairs and in the room to the right. I could see through an open door straight ahead into the kitchen where the lights were on and a female officer stood with her back to me. I could hear sobs and clinking china from behind her and the KMCD weather report from the room to the left. My eyes followed the sound. Different but equally old-fashioned wallpaper. Thick, modded, 
brown carpet that reminded me of the coconut frosting of a German chocolate cake. Oval doily covered coffee table, a big plush sofa with a quilt folded over the back on one side, and two less comfortable looking but clearly expensive chairs on the other. A well-worn brown leather lazy boy positioned with the best view of the large oak TV cabinet, which was turned on, playing the local morning news at a respectable volume. In the middle of the room was a nude male corpse. I took out my camera, the SLR, not the Polaroid, and took a few shots of the scene before stepping inside the room. The body was completely nude and hung upside down by its feet from a rope secured to a hook in the ceiling that had a fancy plaster medallion around it and probably used to support a chandelier. The same rope hung down to loop around each of the victim's wrists, holding the arms in place at his sides as if he were standing normally, casually, upside down. The body belonged to an older man, maybe 60 or thereabouts, slightly overweight. Face was familiar, but I couldn't place it. The throat had been cut, deeply and completely across from right below one ear to the other. The skin was very pale, stiff to the touch. I crouched down and took a look at the carpet under the spot where the body hung. It was clean and undisturbed except for a circular impression maybe a foot in diameter. As I stood up, I could see a neat pile of folded clothes in the seat of the recliner. I snapped some pictures and did a quick look around at the furniture. Nothing else was out of place. That's Richard Boyd. I turned around and saw Chief Hayes and Bill Franklin, one of our officers, standing right outside the room. Boyd's quality meets Boyd, I asked. The chief nodded. Boyd's has been one of the largest meatpacking companies in this part of the state until he sold out to Innovative Foods Incorporated in the early 70s and retired. He never ran for any office in town, but kept his fingers in whatever they'd fit. Lions Club, the Boys High Boosters, he sponsored pancake breakfasts on Veterans Day, bought little leg uniforms, he was hardly a Rockefeller, but Boyd was probably the wealthiest man in the county. Who was the first on the scene? I asked. Franklin piped up. I was, he said. Mrs. Boyd woke up and noticed her husband wasn't in bed and came downstairs. She saw this. Franklin's eyes flitted away from mine to the body. She called the station. She used the old number, not 911. I guess with it being new and, well, the circumstances... Anyways, it took a while for dispatch to connect, and by the time I got here, she was too distressed to talk. I radioed in, and the chief took over. Did anything get moved or touched? I asked him. Franklin was pretty good, but this house wasn't what the State Division of Criminal Investigation would call a secure crime scene, and I had a hunch it would be calling Des Moines for their help sooner or later. When I got here, I heard Mrs. Boyd screaming and, and crying. The door was unlocked, so I went in to make sure she was okay, and then I checked the house to secure it. Everything was clear and nothing, well, nothing besides this. Looked out of the ordinary. When I saw this, 
No, I didn't touch anything. Has Mrs. Boyd said anything? I asked. Mary, said the chief. No, she's obviously suffered a tremendous shock. Officer Malone has been sitting with her in the other room. Mary and my Sarah have been friends since they were girls. I've sent for a car to pick her up and bring her here. I thought it might help, but I'd rather Sarah not see any of this. I've called for Doc Gerns and for as many officers as we can spare. I'd like to get the body to pathology as soon as he signs off. I nodded. Franklin can help me finish in here while we wait. I handed Franklin the Polaroid and had him follow me around the scene to take more pictures. The Polaroids aren't as detailed as what I can get with my other camera, but they developed right away and I like to have them for reference. I double-checked spots I looked at when I first walked in and jotted down some notes. After that, we took a look around the rest of the house. Other than the bed, sheets and blankets disturbed on one side only, the house was neat and tidy. We came downstairs just as Doc Gerns came in. The Mohegan County Medical Examiner always seemed like an ostentious title for the plump, gray-haired country doctor. But at times like this, he wore it naturally. He gave me a half-smile and then went into the living room. Franklin and I followed and watched as Doc calmly approached the body. He took a small flashlight out of his breast pocket and looked at the eyes, mouth, and ears, then at the wound across the neck. He pinched the skin at the wrist, the shoulder, the hip, and the upper thigh. Well, he said, he's dead. Thanks, Doc. You get pictures of all of this? I nodded. Go get some guys in a ladder, he said to Franklin. Anything else you'd care to add at this time, I asked. Doc eyed the body. I suspect foul play. Thanks, Doc. Sorry, he smiled weakly. I'll want to wait until I can do a full autopsy, of course, he said, turning back to the body. But I'd tentatively estimate the time of death at six to eight hours ago. I don't see any defensive wounds on the body, but there's a general lack of discoloration, so it's hard to say for certain. Franklin came back in with a stepladder, three other officers, and two paramedics with a stretcher. Doc moved out of the way and scratched a few notes into a little notebook. The chief returned while the men worked at lowering the body. What are we looking at, Dave? he asked quietly. Estimated time of death around midnight... No forced entry, no signs of struggle, which suggests the victim was either subdued quickly or caught off guard by someone he knew. Rope against the victim's bare ankles suggests that the clothes were removed before he was tied up. Victim was then elevated and suspended from the ceiling. Laceration to the victim's throat seems the likely cause of death, but I'll leave that up to Doc. And no signs of robbery, nothing missing? Just the blood, I said. Doc grunted and smiled tightly. Victim is what? 240, 250 pounds? Hanging upside down like this would force all the blood in his body towards the head and torso. How much blood would that be, Doc? Hmm. Depends how hydrated he was, diet, a few other things. 
five and a half, six liters, give or take, he said. Cut in clear across the throat, this room should look like a slaughterhouse. But it's spotless, I wondered out loud. The paramedics groaned loudly as they each took one of the body's shoulders and pushed upwards. Franklin teetered on the top of the ladder as he hoisted both of the body's legs in a one-armed bear hug and fiddled with the knotted rope with his free hand. Two of the other officers tried to help by pulling up on the corpse's hips while the other one held the ladder. After a minute of grunts, groans, and curses, Franklin managed to get the legs unhooked and the rest of the men narrowly caught the dead weight. Doc Gurns, Chief Hayes, and I watched silently as they loaded the body onto the stretcher, covered it, and wheeled it out. The chief closed his eyes and pushed his glasses up off the bridge of his nose and started rubbing it with his thumb and forefinger. Sarah is here. I let her in through the back door so she could see to Mary, he said. Give them a few minutes before you go in. He straightened and addressed Doc. I don't think I need to tell you this is a priority. I'm following the ambulance so I can get start right away. I'll need to send samples to the lab in Des Moines, so it may be a few days before I can give you a full report. I'll call the station as soon as I have something. The chief nodded and turned to me. Did you have anything else on your plate for today? Nothing that can't wait, I said. Break in at Lyle's auto body night before last. That can sit a few days. Good, he said. The men are taking statements from the neighbors. I want a special briefing with all available officers this afternoon. I asked Sandy to have the conference room ready for one o'clock, but if you get a lead to follow, you follow it. Chief Hayes' eyes had started to go a couple years ago, but he still saw me notice how low his shoulders had sunk. He straightened up and tightened his jaw as he turned to head outside. I need your best on this, Dave. All right, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit into the book, and we're going to find ourselves at a very familiar place. I spent that afternoon camped out behind the screen of a temperamental microfilm machine in the back of the public library. Four days out, and I exhausted every line of investigation I could think of and was left grasping for anything I could find relevant to Boyd's past. I had been reading through every article from the Du Bois Press Citizen about Boyd that was in the library's index and had gotten nowhere. Anyone I could find who was close to him all said the same thing. He was a big-hearted guy who spread his money around town and had plenty of friends. His meat packing plant had basically kept the town afloat and nothing really changed besides the name when he sold the place. I finished the last reel the librarian had pulled for me and sat rubbing my eyes while the machine rewound the film. The random thrill killer theory was still the only one that would stand up, but it felt wrong. Probably only a matter of time before the chief decided he had to file this one away with the cold cases and hope things would settle down on their own. But leaving something like this unsolved would fester in a town of, like this. Who could say the killer wouldn't come back? Or that he wasn't still here? 
I stood and slumped over to the massive oak reference desk to return to microfilm. The librarian smiled at me. I couldn't remember her name, but I knew we talked a while at some singles thing Mrs. Walshans made me go to at her church last summer. She had to be at least ten years older than me, but it was hard to tell. Bright eyes had always looked like she had just been laughing. Were these any help, detective? I'm afraid not, I said, defeated. I was in a bit of a daze after staring at projected newsprint on the dim screen. I leaned on the desk and looked around the building absentmindedly until my eyes finally settled on a small sign hanging on a table covered with a neat stack of books. Warning, the library is not responsible for nightmares, I read out loud, walking over to look at the books. Well-worn volumes with pink skulls grinning back at me from stickers on their spines. Dracula, Frankenstein, the Invisible Man. The librarian smiled. Oh, yes, she chuckled. For Halloween, you know. I thought of James West out for a stroll at midnight in the fog. You wouldn't happen to have anything in the index about an old TV show, Saturday Nightmares. She pursed her lips slightly and walked out from behind the desk to a large wooden cabinet full of small drawers. She glanced at her watch then pulled out one of the drawers and shuffled through the tiny cards inside, pausing once to pull out a card, then another a few seconds later. Pretty fast, I said. She disappeared with the cards into a back room and returned with two reels of microfilm. She glanced at her watch again and then handed them to me along with a satisfied smile. Fastest in the West. Thanks, I said taking them back to my nest around the machine. The first card cited an article from October of 1960. I loaded the film reels and lazily scanned to the right date. The article was only an inch or so long, buried in the back corner on the happenings page. Shock Theater returns to KMCD as Saturday Nightmares. Fright film fans will no doubt scream at the return of Shock Theater to local KMCD-TV this Saturday night. The show, now dubbed Saturday Nightmares, will follow the same format as Shock and will again feature the self-styled cool ghoul Boris Orloff. Tune in Saturday at 10 o'clock for Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. I don't know what I was expecting. I felt more than a little silly for wasting time, and I hit the rewind button sharply in frustration. But I still loaded the other reel and scanned ahead to the first week of July 1964. This time the article was on the front page and featured a large photo of a group of men and women on the street outside the TV station downtown. Citizens to KMCD, cancel smut or else. Thursday, a group of concerned citizens gathered outside of KMCD and demanded the station cancel the weekly Saturday Nightmares program. In a prepared statement, the group's spokesperson, Reverend Matthew Fowler, said, This is nothing but pornography of the ugliest sort. It celebrates degradation of the human spirit. 
Furthermore, this program has had a clear and deleterious effect on the impressionable youth of Du Bois and the county at large. The group contends that in addition to promoting films to children which were intended for an adult audience, Saturday Nightmares features near-constant references to murder, dismemberment, cannibalism, and the occult, as well as many other unsavory behaviors. The group also accuses the program's host, a ghoul named Boris Orloff, portrayed by KMCD's electrician and handyman, Melville Roberts, of regularly inciting panic among his young viewers. One of my parishioner's children came to her in near hysterics, pleading and crying to not let Boris get her. Afterwards, she learned that her child had watched the program and was told by Boris that if they ever stopped watching, she would be torn to pieces in her bed. These allegations might be easily dismissed as macabre showmanship, the group concedes, if it were not for Mel Roberts' actions outside of the TV studio. Numerous complaints have been made against Roberts for charges ranging from public intoxication to menacing. This is not a man we can trust with our children, their bodies, or their minds. At press time, representatives of KMCD were unavailable for comment, as was Melville Roberts. There was another picture at the bottom. It was darker than the other one and harder to make out in detail, but I could see a tall and cadaverously thin man in a black suit with a greasy-looking pompadour leering at the camera and leaning against the side of a black hearse. The hood had been removed, and you could see the body of an obscenely massive engine and multiple oversized exhaust pipes jutting out in its place. The caption read, Mel Roberts, a.k.a. Boris Orloff, and his custom-built hearse, courtesy Lyo's Auto Body, Du Bois. I scrambled through the file folders I brought until I found the copy I'd made of Franklin's report, remembering what he had told me that morning. A car. Big one. Maybe a truck. Black or dark-colored. Really loud engine. I stared at the cap caption, a lump rising in my throat. Lyo's auto body, Du Bois. I took out my notebook and flipped backwards until I found it. Breaking and entering. Possible grand theft. Lyo's auto body in collision. 10 20 2100. The call had come in the day before the murder, but I had put it off to deal with the Boyd case. He used to come in here all the time, you know. I half jumped out of my skin, but quickly regained composure when I saw the librarian hovering over my shoulder. Big reader, I managed. This was back when I first started working here, but I remember him very well. His real name was Melville, she said, glancing back at the cabinet. Like the author. Come to think of it, I think he may have been indexed separately. I watched her flick her thin fingers through another drawer, and in a moment she had returned with a single reel of film. He used to read Poe out loud when children were around. The Raven, Cask of Amontillado, she said with a wistful smile. He would act out voices and make faces. What did the kids think? I asked. Oh, the children loved him. They loved being scared anyway, and he terrified them. 
He was usually a quiet, kind of sad man, but he just came to life when he was scaring them. I suppose that wasn't enough for him, though. What do you mean? Oh, well, he went on to scare everybody, didn't he? The story was on page three from the November 2nd, 1965 edition. Fire claims one at theater. A stage caught fire during a special Halloween triple feature at the Moonlight Drive-In Theater late Saturday night. Melville Roberts, see obituaries B3, had been performing on the stage between films when the fire started and was trapped there when the blaze quickly grew out of control. Many in the audience were shaken, but none were injured. Witnesses reported that they thought it was part of the performance and did not attempt to aid Mr. Roberts until it was too late. Official reports, officials report the fire was caused when faulty wiring in the stage lights ignited a supply of paint, turpentine, and other flammable materials stored underneath the stage. Owner and proprietor Myrna Skroger has stated that the theater is now closed until further notice. I skimmed ahead to the obits, but only found a few more lines. Melville Roberts, 44, of Du Bois, died October 31, 1965. Roberts served as a Lance Corporal in the United States Marine Corps in the Pacific Theater from 1941 to 1945. He is preceded in death by his mother and father. Private services to be held at the home of Myrna and June Skoger. And we'll leave it at that kind of cliffhanger. So thank you a lot for listening to Warlock Vorbach Reads, a Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library podcast. And lots of thank yous to Ben and the Crystal Lake Publishing folk for letting me promote this exciting new novel. Be sure to subscribe because I have a special treat for December. I'll be reading the most popular ghost story of them all, a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. So be sure to check the library's blog for further details. Until next time. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our Warlock Vorobach Reads podcast for monthly chills. This has been a production of the Public Library of Cincinnati in Hamilton County. <laughs> <laughs>